You're now listening to episode 110 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Tom Costelli joined here today with Kevin McGrath, principal at Cardinal Industrial, a leading buyer, seller, and operator of bulk warehousing and distribution assets. Kevin is also an official member of the Forbes Real Estate Council. In today's episode, we discuss various aspects of investing in industrial real estate for both active and passive investors, as well as tax strategies for real estate brokers, agents, and professionals. Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background and how you got involved with real estate? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on, Tom. I got involved in real estate in 2007 in, uh, in commercial brokerage in Columbus, Ohio, with a company which at the time was Colliers International. I initially got in, I, I wanted to get into commercial real estate at the time because my roommate worked for Marcus and Millichap and he was always bringing his work home and talking about it. And it intrigued me because I, you know, I, I liked real estate on the surface, but also I liked the, the uncapped income you could make. So I, I started cold calling all the managing principals of the top brokerages in Columbus. And it just so happened that at Colliers, they had a team that needed a, a junior broker. And their specialty was industrial brokerage. I knew nothing about industrial real estate before I met with them. I just happened to like the guys on the team. They were two senior level brokers and I liked the company and they needed a junior broker. So it just fit. I kind of fell into it at the time. That was in 2007. Before that, previously, I had actually uh, in 2004 (laughs) gotten involved in direct investing so this was about a year after college. I, with two other friends, bought a residential house. It was a condo. And we made some improvements and it flipped it. And about four months later, sold it. Didn't make much of a profit, but we took what we had and we 1031 it into another property. This was in 2005 that we acquired off the, 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 the sheriff's sale site in Franklin County, which is in, in Columbus, Ohio. And, and that property ended up... Uh, for the first couple of years, it did, it did okay, but it, it turned out to be a complete disaster. And not to bore you with the details, but it's, it's one of those properties that you hear investors have nightmare scenarios with investing in real estate. Well, that was one. And that was really my first foray into real estate investing was, was this disaster product or disaster investment. We had horrible tenants that many of them would not pay on time. And always had issues with the property as far as, uh, you know, roof, critters. I mean, you name it, we had issues with it. So long story short, as I ended up divesting out of that about three years ago, I mean, I was in it for, for 10 years with, with two of my friends. But uh, circling back to, to brokerage, I was in brokerage from 2007 until, until last year in, in 2019. My, my partner and I, we ended up leaving Colliers to go to CVRE in 2013 had a great run there, made a few bucks. And then throughout my, my probably call it my last five years at CV, I was always trying to find deals on my own to grow my direct investing business. So I would, in my spare time, send out 
letters to property owners in the area where I lived and also near Ohio State's campus. And I, I would get leads every now and then. But what, what I discovered was that it took a lot of time and it wasn't a very effective use of my time because I, I didn't end up buying any properties. You know, the, the properties were expensive and the numbers didn't make sense. So after getting hit in the head multiple times with uh, not finding any deals, I, I finally turned to, uh, to passive investing about, about two years ago. What type of properties were you looking for when you're sending out those mailers? Were they residential or commercial properties? Well, a little bit of both. They, they were commercial in the sense that uh, they were four units or larger. So mm-hmm. they, they were multifamily, some as small as uh, duplexes, but you know, upwards of uh, up to probably 20, 24 units. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and now, and now uh, I understand you're, you're investing in, in industrial and you, you are a managing member of a lot of the deals that you're going to be involved in. Um, what's special about industrial? Why would someone want to invest in, invest in these properties? And what types of properties are actually industrial properties? Yeah. So let, let, let me back up. I'm, I, I obviously invest in industrial right now because that, that was my background. I, I cut my teeth in brokerage. So I, I, you know, I'm a quote unquote an, an expert in, in industrial real estate. So it, it just made sense for me at the time um, last year to pursue it full time. I actually, when I got started passively investing, it was in multifamily. So I, I know enough to be dangerous with multifamily, but I wanted to go the industrial route because I saw a need there for um, more syndicators. You know, it felt like maybe on the, on the multifamily side, it was a little bit a uh, little bit saturated. The types of industrial properties. So th- th- there's a few, and I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Um, there's flex industrial which is smaller industrial space. So it, it's, it's essentially multi-tenant industrial buildings. So call it, maybe it's a 50,000 square foot building that has five 10,000 square foot units. And each of those units has a different tenant. And each of the units is comprised of, call it maybe a half office space, half warehouse. So maybe there, there's 5,000 square feet of office up front for office employees. And then there's 5,000 square feet of a warehouse in the back. Those properties tend to they'll, they'll lease pretty quickly, they'll lease up pretty quickly, but yeah. tenants will tend tend to move out pretty regularly. We we don't look at acquiring those properties because they're a little bit more management intensive because of the tenant turnover. Also because they're comprised of a, a good amount of office space, refurbishing that or renovating the office, the, the tenant improvements tend to be a little bit more costly than than yeah. Um, bulk industrial. So bulk industrial is, is is where we play most often. And bulk industrial is distribution or fulfillment warehouse space that is a hundred thousand square feet or larger. So these are the large warehouse buildings that uh, that that you may see when you order something online. It's mm-hmm. it, it, it's coming from a, a bulk industrial facility. You know, typically these facilities are 20, 25 years old or newer. They have uh, Ceiling clear heights of 28 feet or, or taller. The newer buildings are, are, are taller. And um, typically, this is kind of your class A, class B space. And companies are, are, are doing um, distribution, at, typically distribution out of these facilities. And then the third asset or third uh, industrial type is, is manufacturing. And when people think of industrial, I know I did early on, it's probably what they think of industrial, kind of dirty old manufacturing. And, um, you know, there's certainly some of that. We, we typically stay away from manufacturing only because these, these type of buildings, you know, if and when they go vacant, they're, they're hard to release or, or sell to other companies because they're so specific to a 
a user that's in there. So they're hard to retrofit. It's it's not a one size fits all like a, a a bulk warehouse. So it sounds like the bulk warehouse. It's like the I, for like an example, like an Amazon warehouse that might be yes. considered a bulk warehouse, and that's the area you guys are looking into. And yes, us and most investors, I, I, I would say, yeah, there, there's definitely money to be made in, in, in the others, but the, the most popular type of industrial is, is your your bulk warehouse. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with industrial. I'll be honest, but is there like uh, a is there like a triple net lease that goes on with industrial property? How does that how does that work? Yeah, it, it just depends on on, on the specific uh, the specific deal. The, the, there is, yeah. So we, we just acquired a uh, an investment uh, that that had a ten year absolute net lease with 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 the, with the tenant. So the tenant is responsible for essentially everything with the property. So if 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 it needs a new roof, the tenant is going to pay for it. If if it needs uh, new heaters or you know it needs refresh or a new parking lot, it's the tenant's responsibility. I will say though that the most common lease structure is is a triple net lease structure where the the investor or the owner is going to be responsible for the roof and the parking lot. That those are the most common. Any other expenses can be passed back through to the tenant for them to reimburse the landlord. But but typically roof. And the the parking lot or, or and the structure, the, the foundation and the structure are going to be the landlord's responsibility. Now, the nice thing with with industrial is the roof they last twenty five to forty years, depending on you know if it's a rubber roof or metal roofs. Metal roofs last forty years. You know, rubber roofs last twenty to twenty five to up to upwards of thirty years. So they're pretty darn resilient. That makes sense. And, you know, you, you mentioned before that part of the reason why you went the industrial route was, you know, you knew about the space already from being a broker, a lot of uh, syndicators in the multifamily and, you know, commercial real estate space, not too many in industrial. So I guess, you know, is there any other reasons, perhaps the market outlook for this asset class was good or the returns you can get that investors can get on these assets? What does that look like? Well, it's strong. I mean, to answer the first part, I mean, there's not as many syndicators. I mean, this is probably more of a, an educated guess, I think, because, well, I think probably two reasons. One is um, there's a lot more competition at the institutional level with industrial, mm-hmm. maybe more so than the other asset classes. And the familiarity, I think, too, comes into it. Not as many people are, are familiar with industrial. Therefore, it's, it's less likely than that asset class to get into. Obviously, at one time or another, we've all rented an apartment building, so we're somewhat familiar with all of us with with multifamily. Um, the second part, going to to uh, I think you said the the returns. So we, I, historically, the returns for industrial are, are going to be a little bit better than the, the other asset classes. Now, depend now it, it's gotten so much more competitive. Depending on on where you buy, that's probably probably not the case. I mean, in, in the first and second tier markets, if you're looking to acquire bulk industrial. Uh, cap rates are really, really compressed. For example, in, in Greater Los Angeles, you know you're looking at cap rates uh, sub five, so it, it has gotten really, really competitive. Where where we try to achieve more yield for our investors is we're looking to acquire properties, Tom, that are in the secondary markets and tertiary markets that that are leased to good credit tenants, but because they're in maybe uh, tertiary markets. The the institutional capital is not chasing deals there, or as many uh, institutional players are, are chasing deals. So, so the competition is is a fraction of what it would be in other markets. So we return to our investors, net to our investors, between eight ten percent cash on cash return 
Um, if it's below 8%, you know, it's, it's not a deal for us. So we're, we're, we're typically looking at seven caps and, and above. And a lot of the institutional investors are, are going to look at buildings that are only made out of concrete. Concrete buildings, they tend to be maybe a, a little bit more durable, but they have a higher image also. They're aesthetically better looking. So if, if there's a building that's made out of metal, that is probably just as functional, but it doesn't maybe isn't quite as durable and doesn't look as good. Institutional companies won't buy it, whereas we will because we can get the yield. And there's there's good quality tenants who, who occupy those buildings as well. So I would imagine the market outlook in terms of demand for this type of uh, product from the tenant base has to, you know, with the internet being what it is, especially during COVID right now, we have yeah. um, probably high demand. Would that be uh, would that be about accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. I mean, a, a lot of the listeners have probably, I mean, if, if they've been reading it all, which I'm sure they have. I mean, industrial's been in the news a lot the last three months since since COVID hit. Historically, industrial, and I remember this during you know the last downturn. I mean, industrial it, it was definitely not recession proof. It was tied to consumer spending. So, if the consumer spending was down and the state of the economy was down, industrial was down. But what e-commerce has done, it's it's kind of changed that that dynamic because it's it's not how much consumers are spending, it's how they're spending. So even if consumer spending is down, if consumers are spending online, which they are increasingly, that is growing the the industrial tenant base dramatically. I mean, I can imagine. I mean, like right now, if you consider the bulk warehouse, I mean, so much stuff is bought online and even more increasingly so with COVID. You know, every time you turn around, you're hearing about Amazon. And that's just an example. Everybody knows. I'm sure there's many other, yeah. many others out there. But, you know, it's opening up a new warehouse somewhere. So, yeah. I mean, I could just see, I could see the demand for this asset class being there and probably continuing to grow as as more and more stuff moves online. Amazon's un- un- unbelievable. They, uh, it, it may be a little bit, of an anomaly when it comes to uh, industrial tenants, but there's many who aren't far behind. But Amazon, I, I saw a stat the other day, has at least close to 25 million square feet this year alone, even with COVID going on. I think the next nearest uh, company was well under 10 million square feet. So they are just continually reinvesting in their supply chain. And you know that's why they weren't profitable for so many years, because they were just putting money back into their investments in the, in the supply chain. Yeah, and you know, I, I got to imagine a company like that. I mean, they're also probably looking at those tertiary markets for warehouse space. I mean, I, I would have to imagine. I mean, they want to be traveling too far out of you know the primary markets to deliver their products. Well, that's a good point. So they definitely are. If if you can name a, a city over fifty thousand people in, in the U.S., they, they probably have a presence within twenty five miles. So so with with the onset of more people online shopping, they're all following the, the Amazon standard now, which is getting a delivery within a day. I mean, how how frustrated are you if you order something online and, and it comes in a week? I mean, our expectations. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I just, I ordered something from Walmart the other day and they have, they have like one day shipping on a bunch of, on a bunch of stuff now from their website. This is, and this is Walmart. And one of the items I bought from Walmart, this is a true story. It was not coming till Wednesday of this weekend. It's Monday. And I'm, I'm a little annoyed, <laughs> but my, yeah. why. I'm like, if it was Amazon, it would be here today. So. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because four years ago, if you would have ordered that, that uh, same product off Amazon, it probably would have gotten there in, in four or five days. Amazon was, or excuse me, Walmart was falling way, way behind Amazon uh, on the supply chain side. And they've reinvested a ton of their capital in, into modernizing their supply chain the last three to five years. And I don't know the specific stats, but, but they, they are 
slowly closing the, the gap with Amazon on, on, on their e-commerce side of the business. But in order to get deliveries to the end user within a short time period, you have to be close to the end user. Absolutely. So uh, you have to have a high volume number of distribution centers. And, and that's what companies are, are, are having to realize is they have to, maybe they have, instead of one large distribution center, they have four smaller distribution centers scattered throughout the U.S. So getting back to your, your initial point, we, we just acquired uh, about six months ago an Amazon facility in Iowa City, Iowa. So Iowa City, Iowa, University of Iowa is there. So large Big Ten school, 40,000 students, maybe 45,000. And uh, Amazon is right there in the backyard to, to supply not only Iowa City, but Eastern Iowa and, and Western Illinois. So uh, they have multiple facilities in Iowa. And yeah, again, if you name, can think of a city uh, with over 50,000 people and Amazon is nearby. Yeah. I mean, I know Jacksonville, Florida just had an Amazon um, facility open up recently or is going to this year. Oh, I they probably have multiple. Time. I bet Jacksonville, not knowing this, but they probably have two or three Amazon facilities. No, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a huge city. I mean, I live in New York, so I, okay. I I live on Long Island, which is slightly outside of New York. But I mean, I see Amazon trucks everywhere these days. Everywhere. And they, they got, they, Amazon has their stuff down. I mean, if I order something off Amazon today, it's going to be here either tomorrow or the next day. So it's, yeah. it's they're on point. Yeah, they, they are. So the other interesting thing with people don't think about is that when, when you order something online, what percent, what you order goes back, gets returned. I mean, for me, it's probably half. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, imagine if you're buying clothes and what have you. Yeah, you might be trying yeah. some stuff on and some sending some stuff back for sure. Yeah, so I, I, I think the stat is about thirty percent of product that is ordered online gets returned. It's way higher than than it would be if you if you went in, into a bricks and mortar and, and bought something. So that is another aspect that companies have to deal with: is what do they do with these returns? Because actually, the returns are typically not going back to the same warehouse they came from, because the the type of facility that it goes back to doesn't need to be the same, doesn't need to have the same specifications from the the original, from the origin warehouse. Because this product is coming in, they're they're checking for um, any wear and tear, and it's not going back in the racking. It's going back, they're going to typically floor stack a lot of it, stack it on the floor, and it's going to get moved out of that warehouse pretty quickly. So the, the return warehouses are typically kind of second generation space, kind of class B. The clear height is maybe not as tall. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles of a modern facility, and it's a little less expensive. And that's really the type of warehouses we buy. Um, some class A, but mainly it's, it's class B. And class B is, is maybe 20 years older, 20 years old, 25 years old, still really functional, uh, but, but you, get, you get a little bit better pricing and um, the competition isn't quite as feverish as it is in that, that kind of newer class A bulk. That makes a ton of sense. I know we've talked about this a little bit on this podcast so far, but you know, obviously not a lot of individuals get in the space, you know, and, and the reasons are clear. You know, obviously everybody understands single family, multifamily, strip malls and stuff like yeah. retail, stuff like that. So, you know, how would an individual, if I'm, if I'm an investor and I want to get access to the industrial space, how do individual investors get access? Yeah, obviously passively, but I mean, if, if you wanted to do to get in there directly, you, you could you could buy a smaller warehouse. Um, you know, where you are in Long Island, obviously, it's going to be a lot a lot more expensive than where I. Well, and I'm in California now, but where I was in Ohio, uh, you know, the, 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 there are there are industrial buildings you can buy for under a million dollars. You know, again, they're kind of that smaller uh, multi-tenant industrial space that again is is functional. It's occupied by kind of smaller regional companies. 
they stay really well leased, but it's a little bit more management intensive. But you know, directly you, you could get uh, you know industrial products for less than a, a million dollars. On the passive side, yeah, there, there, there's probably not as many options if you want to invest passively in industrial than there would be, uh, you know, if, if, if I wanted to, to go invest in, in, in multifamily or even self-storage or uh, mobile homes. And I can imagine, I mean, for, for I think for most people out there, to your point, they're going to have to go the passive route because, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just not the same. I mean, look, I, I, I'm very familiar with multifamily and I think it's, you know, it, to go and do an industrial property, you know, from where you're at, I mean, you have to have some kind of knowledge in that. Yeah. It's not, not as easy. It's not as easy access. So passive is probably the way to go. So is there anything else that investors should know about the industrial asset class? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just leave it with, with this thought that you know, no matter what asset class uh, where we're looking at, a lot of it is driven by tenant demand, right? If, if you don't have tenants uh, to backfill your, your multifamily apartments, or if you don't have companies to lease up your, your office space, the same thing goes with industrial. It's, it's all driven by tenant demand. And what we're seeing with the rise of e-commerce is, is pretty astounding. For every a billion dollar increase, in e-commerce sales, the market needs to deliver 1.25 million square feet. So in, in 2018, the e-commerce sales were about 423 million. This year, they're expected to reach just over 700 billion. So, 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 so it's 423 billion of e-commerce sales in 2018. This year, it's increased almost 300 billion. So that, that in just two years alone, the market needs to deliver almost 400 million square feet of warehouse space just to meet that demand. So e-commerce is real. It's driving industrial demand. And really what we're seeing is almost a trickle-down effect where these e-commerce users are going into these Class A properties because the Class A properties have the, the modern specifications that the e-commerce companies need. And a lot of the, the former tenants who are occupying these spaces are, are now having to look at class B space because the functionality is there. Maybe they don't have all the bells and whistles, but and they're getting priced out of, of class A buildings because they're getting rent growth in the class A space. So with industrial, why a lot of investors are flocking to it is because of the, the tenant demand. I mean, it, it's year over year, there's, there's been growth. Do you see like a, a spike in construction of, of industrial properties happening as well? Or is the market primarily being filled by what's existing currently? Yeah, I, I would say it's, it's been in balance. And I, I think what's, what's in a, still in, in the back of a lot of industrial developers' minds is, is kind of what happened from 08 to 2012. There, there was so much being overbuilt. And uh, you know, I, I think lenders now are keeping it a little bit uh, better in check. And uh, you know, construction has, I mean, certainly... You know, pre 2018, construction was certainly not out of whack like it was, you know, back in uh, 2000, 2008. So it, it's been stable. That's good to know, especially from an investor standpoint, that uh, there's not going to be too much supply coming on the market that's going to uh, saturate, you know, saturate the market with. The yeah, I mean, uh, there's definitely supply. I mean, industrial uh, developers are definitely still building, especially in the first year markets. I mean, there, there is a lot of spec development going on, no question. But again, it, it's been, uh, you know, we're in 2020 and, and you know, they, they've been active building spec warehouses since probably 2013. And year over year, all of it gets absorbed and, and developers keep building and building. So e-commerce has really been kind of a game changer for the dynamics of industrial. 
Got it. Got it. So we're switching gears a little bit. We are the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Got to talk about taxes a little bit. So I know you've you've been an agent in the past, um, or broker rather, and now you're in real estate full-time as a syndicator. What type of tax strategies are you using to minimize taxes? Yeah. So when I was an, an agent, as you said, with, with CBRE, I, I was a, a W-2. And I loved at the time being a W-2 because it was one less thing I had to think about. The government just took their money right off the top. Exactly. And I got a, a fat reimbursement every, uh, every April and I yeah. liked it, but I didn't know better. I was, uh, I had wool over my eyes and I had no idea the type of tax strategies that, uh, could be put in place to save a lot of money. And now that I've put some of those tax strategies in place, now that I'm a, a 1099, the, the amount of money I'm going to be saving is it's a game changer. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I mean, for any agents out there, any brokers out there, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're working on a W-2 basis, you got to speak to your tax advisors. You got to get out. You got to speak to your company. You got to, you you have, that's the number one thing you have to do. And I can't preach that enough, how wrong I was. Put in a little investment up front, hire a good accountant, a good real estate accountant, and you have to switch to a 1099. Yeah, absolutely. Because once you're 1099, you're automatically going to be a real estate professional. I mean, if you're a serious agent or broker, you do it full time. Um, you're going to meet that real estate professional test just by being on 1099. And now you have the opportunity to basically reduce your tax bills by investing in investment properties, whether it be industrial or commercial or residential, um, and use stuff like cost irrigation stuff we talk about here on the podcast all the time to increase your losses and, and basically minimize your tax bills. But you got to be on 1099. Yes. Um, one of the first things I did was I, I created an LLC, and then we did uh, we d- declared an, an escort election. Correct. Yeah. So why, why, why don't you <laughs> maybe since you're the expert, I know enough to be dangerous, but if you just want to explain why I did that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when you're when you're a real estate agent or you work on a 1099 basis as a consultant, you're going to be subject to the self-employment tax 15.3% on all of your income up to 100 and I think it's 37,900 if I'm not mistaken um, this year. And uh, basically 15.3% is a lot. It's a lot of money. I mean, like if you just do the math right now, $100,000, that's $15,300. So what you do is you have the money go through an LLC, you have the LLC taxed as an S corporation, and then you pay yourself a salary through that S corporation. And only the salary is uh, going to be subject to that self-employment tax at 15.3%. And the remainder is not subject to that tax. So basically you get in there, whether you're an agent or a consultant, and uh, you're going to basically put yourself a salary. It has to be reasonable. So you have to speak to your advisors on what that reasonable salary looks like. But once you have that, you're going to be able to save you know, anywhere from six to $10,000 or more in some cases per year in taxes by using that strategy. But you have to be in a 1099 to do that. Yes, it's, it's great. And, and then setting up my, my payroll through Gusto enabled me to do that. Yeah, yeah. Gusto, you know what it is about Gusto to Kevin's point before, um, where it's just one last thing you have to deal with. I mean, payroll could be a pain, could be a pain. And uh, what Gusto does, it streamlines everything. You set up you set up your payroll, it'll come out on a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, quarterly, or you could do it annually, all through Gusto files, all the state forms. You don't have to, to worry about anything. You set up pretty much one time, you just make sure the money's in your account and you're good to go. It makes it painless. Yeah. The other thing I'm doing, Tom, is 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 tracking my hours. Now that I'm, I'm, I'm investing directly and I'm a managing member of, of our acquisitions, uh, of our deals that, that we acquire, 
Um, I'm, I'm tracking those hours to see uh, exactly how many hours and what I'm doing in order to get to 500 hours of material participation. Material participation. There you go. Yeah, no. So yeah, the way it works is two parts of the real estate professional status test. And we talk about it all the time here on the show. The first one is you spend 750 hours in a real property trader business. And if you're a broker or an agent out there, you're in a real property trader business, you're going to meet that 750 hour test. And it has to be more than half your total work time. The next step is you have to spend at least, there's multiple tests for material participation, but the one most people are going to meet, the one most people strive to meet is the 500 hour test. Um, and that's you spend 500 hours of rental activities across your portfolio. You know, and in Kevin's case, being a manager member, doing a lot of the asset management, pretty much most of those hours that he's working are going to count towards that 500 hour test. And if you're out there doing multifamily or single family and you're an agent, uh, this is something you should be exploring too. Yeah, I mean, this is the one that's a game changer for me. If you're a real estate agent, you can still invest passively. And so, so you have the option to invest passively, which I would still recommend, but combine it with trying to find direct investments where, where again, you can be the, the yeah. managing member. So, so you, you have the material participation. So I get kind of the best of both worlds with these because I've invested heavily and still continue to do so passively. So I'm taking my my losses each year from these properties on my K-1s because of accelerated depreciation. And combining that with my direct investments my, uh, on the material participation. So because of this, I mean, it, it's no exaggeration that I'm, I'm going to be saving you know, multiple six figures per year because of this. Oh, yeah. No. And just to be clear to everybody who's listening to that, you know, in order to do what Kevin's doing is you need to have your own direct investments where you can meet that five. You have to to do this, this strategy. You yeah. have to have your direct investments. You have to meet the 500-hour test. You can't meet any of the other material participating tests. It has to be the 500 hours. And at that point, you can combine your passive investments that you do as a limited partner together with your the investments you're doing directly. But all those things have to come into play. So be sure to check with your tax advisor before doing that. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a strategy that's out there and it's very powerful. Very powerful. So. Yeah. Uh, a couple of other things I'm, I'm utilizing are the the home office. I'm tracking my miles to and from work every day. And then uh, lastly, the other uh, really, I, I think, game changer that uh, when you leave a, a W-2 job or W-2 status and go over to 1099 is, is the solo 401k. Before I met you, Tom, <laughs> initially when I, when I went over to 1099 status, I, I invested in a self-directed IRA. In a real estate deal. So I had half of the equation, but I didn't know about UBIT at the time, the pesky UBIT tax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And luckily, uh, it was fairly easy to switch over to a solo 401k from the self directed IRA. But that's the, one of the nice things about being a 1099 is, is, uh, is, is, is potentially having the ability to invest as a solo 401k. So if, yeah. maybe if you want to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So UBIT, you know, UBIT's charged a lot of real estate investments in general that are done through uh, IRAs. And, you know, from our experience, it's never been uh, so much tax of where the investment doesn't make sense anymore, but it is, a, it is a tax nonetheless that you have to pay and it can be annoying to deal with all the filings for it. So the difference is when you have a solo 401k, solo 401ks aren't subject to UBIT on uh, that's generated from UDFI, which is the unrelated debt financed income. 
that a few of our guests who spoke on self-directed retirement accounts go more into. Basically, in the solo 401k, you don't have to worry about that. So if you're on a 1099, you can have a solo 401k. It's one of the more ideal vehicles to invest in real estate from. And to Kevin's point, if you're investing in a self-directed IRA and you open up a solo 401k, you could actually roll over the self-directed IRA investment into the solo 401k and avoid UBIT. You know, at the time of sale, which is a very powerful strategy. But again, you need to you need to be self employed to do it, which is generally going to be ten ninety nine, or you own your own business directly. So, yeah, I, I will say, even if you're W two and, and you're investing in uh, IRA or four hundred one k, that that and it's in the stock market, I, I would highly advise you to look at that again as an investment vehicle and, and consider real estate. My after five years, I think my my, my initial amount that I invested in my. Uh, IRA and then subsequently my, my solo 401k was about $165,000. And I invested that in, into a value-add multifamily deal. It was a five-year hold. It, you know, typically, I think the equity multiple you'll find on those is you know, hovering around 2x. So I'm 39 now. If you do the math, if I, if I invest that in, in a, um, just, just say a multifamily deal every five years, and to make the math easy, it's, it's, it's doubling every five years, that 165 after 20 years becomes $2.6 million. That's powerful. That's powerful. It's super powerful. Think about yeah. that. And then if I leave it another five years, when I'm 64, it's $5.2 million. So in 25 years, the 165 becomes $5.2 million. It is powerful. And you know, I've invested in multifamily too. And while, while we at the Real Estate CPA aren't allowed to give investment advice, I could say that it's, it's definitely powerful because I mean, you're getting, you know, when you're investing in the stock market, you're maybe... You know, you're getting somewhere maybe like if you're lucky, somewhere between like an eight and ten percent return, maybe yeah. if you're lucky. You know, and then with real estate, you're getting usually somewhere between like a, a ten on the low end, depending on the investment, of course. But ten uh, percent to, I mean, I've seen deals go up to thirty-two percent internal rate, you know, of return. Yeah. So it's very powerful, and I think fifteen percent is a safe bet, which we're going to find a lot of investments in the space in. So it's powerful for sure. Yeah. It, it, it is. And, uh, you know, the reason I, I invested that in a multifamily at the time, one is we didn't have any industrial deals at the time. And then, you know, the second was a lot of our deals tend to be, our industrial deals tend to be more, they're stabilized, they're more cash flow focused. So the cash flow is putting out really high cash flow, but there's not the value add component. So, some, you know, we can't project getting the pop at the end like a value add deal. Our deals are stabilized. We're buying properties at 100% lease to, to credit worthy tenants. So that, that, that's why that particular instance, it, it made a little bit more sense to, to invest in a, in a, a value-add multifamily deal. Yeah, no, and, and that's good to know for everybody out there who's listening to this who wants cash flow. I know a lot of people out there are always ask, looking for cash flow deals. And in the multifamily space, they certainly exist. They certainly do. But there are fewer, more people in the multifamily space, space excuse me, at least from my experience, do the value-add strategy for yeah, obvious I, reasons. Yeah, the, the, kind of the class B value add is, is the place to be in multifamily. I mean, that's where kind of everybody's playing right now. But I, I think what we're seeing is certainly some of the deals I'm invested in passively with multifamily is that uh, you know they're struggling right now to release some of the the units that have been renovated and, and they're, they're turning over. They're, they're struggling to find that the quality of tenant that's employed and has good credit, and they're, they're struggling to achieve the rents that they had performed because, you know, I, I think uh, the, the rents are taking a hit, not on every property, but I, you know, a couple that I'm invested in now, yeah. you know, in, in two, three years, it, it, it'll probably be fine. But, you know, in the near term, that's kind of the, 
some of the uh, the cons of investing in a, a value add deal is any you know any short term turbulence does affect the uh, the financial statement. It's fair to say that someone who's looking for cash flow who wants to maybe put you know twenty five fifty a hundred thousand dollars in a passive investment looking for cash flow at industrial is an option they should be considering. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. You know, we, we own uh, give or take about 12 million square feet across the country. And, uh, you know, we, we had to uh, negotiate with, with two tenants, both in, in, in retail. Um, other than that, we were hundred percent current with, with our rents. All right. That's awesome. Yeah. And again, um, our cash on cash returns net to the investors are on the low end, 8%. Up to eleven percent, so really, really strong uh, returns. That's awesome. So, if our listeners wanted to get in contact with you or learn more about what you have going on, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, my website is McGrathIndustrial.com. I have an ebook there that sheds a little bit more light on industrial real estate to a lesser extent passive investing because I've mm-hmm. experienced there with both. And then uh, the company I work for is Cardinal Industrial. I'm a principal there. And uh, again, we own about 12 million square feet of industrial product across the U.S. And uh, on my website, my, all my contact information will be there. If you have any questions uh, or if you want to get on our, our list to see our, our deals in the future, it's all there uh, on the website. Awesome. Awesome. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to drop that in below into the show notes. And if you want to check out Industrial, go and check out Kevin's website, check out his ebook. Um, and Kevin, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show today and talk about industrial, not something we've uh, really talked about here on the podcast so far. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, You really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.